boy, it's time for another episode of A Journey Through Stock, Aiken and Waterman. I'm Gavin Scott from chartbeats.com.au and this is Matthew Demby. Matt, are you looking for a good time? I'm always looking for a good time, Gavin. Hello, everybody around the world. Big thanks to all of you who got in touch with us over the last two weeks following our Locomotion episode. It's great to hear how many of you really enjoyed that one. We've got three more sore songs to discuss this week. Now, unlike Kylie's tracks, these didn't trouble the UK top 10, but they're all definitely worth a listen and have some great stories behind them. Yes, this is an episode a lot of people have been waiting for because it features some real fan favourites. Two from established sore artists and one from an Italian singer who'd made a huge splash with her impressive hits. But we'll get to those. Matt, who's up first? Yeah, first up, we've got the next single from Banana Rama. With the WOW era drawing to a close, this was a brand new track from the girls' next LP, The Greatest Hits Collection. It's also the band's first completely new material since the departure of Siobhan Fay and the arrival of new member Jackie O'Sullivan. Let's have a listen to Love, Truth and Honesty. That was Love, Truth and Honesty, which charted in the UK in September of 88, peaking at number 23. Elsewhere, it reached number one in Finland, 12 in Ireland, 20 in New Zealand, 25 in Switzerland and 32 here in Australia. It also got to 89 in the US, which was sadly the band's very last appearance in the Billboard Hot 100. That's a fairly disappointing showing for what was a pretty good single, don't you think, Gavin? Yeah, it must have come as a little bit of a surprise because it received a big promo push together with The Greatest Hits collection album you know there were lots of ads which we'll talk about in a little while so the song would have been in people's consciousness they would have been aware that it was out did the album overshadow the single perhaps and people just got the album instead of shelling out for this new single from Bananarama but yeah I think they would have been expecting more for this yeah definitely and as you mentioned this being the lead single from the greatest hits collection there was a lot going on in terms of promo in the UK there was a genius TV campaign with various members of parliament dancing very badly to the hits. Have you seen that one, Gavin? Oh, I have indeed, yes. Politicians and music should not mix. (laughs) Well, they should in this case because that ad was fantastic. Here in Australia, it also got a TV campaign with the return of a familiar voice. Let's have a listen. Hey, want a party? Bananarama's greatest hits collection, the party album for summer, with 14 great dance hits, including Venus. Shy Boy. I heard a rumor. And their latest, Love, Truth and Honesty. Better grab Bananarama's greatest hits collection for your party now on CD, cassette, LP and music video. Hey, want a party? (laughs) Yeah, well, with that kind of push and a killer track list, this album was bound to be a big hit around the world, which it was. It got to number three in the UK, while WOW only got to 26 there. Yeah, and in fact, it's their highest charting album in the UK. And yeah, I mean, it's a greatest hits album, so that's understandable. But it did chart higher than any of their studio albums in the UK which is interesting. Obviously, in Australia, WOW had reached number one. It also went triple platinum, so it was a big, big success. Yeah, a lot of money behind this. Another part of the promo strategy was a big launch party the girls hosted in London, and it was a rather awkward affair for one person in particular. New member Jackie O'Sullivan told the Fascinated with Garode Farrelly podcast, and I quote, 
It was really weird. The album launch in Soho had none of my pictures on the wall at all. So I was the girl in the record launch, but the album cover and the pictures, there was nothing of me. Someone kicked off, it wasn't me, and said, why have you got her here if you're not actually representing her, if she's nowhere to be seen? I should have got some messages from that way back then. Awkward, Gavin, awkward. There was one thing that Jackie did get as part of Love, Truth and Honesty, and that was a co-writing credit on a Bananarama single. She was there with Sarah and Karen as one of the co-writers, with Stockake and Waterman, of course. But what was it like for Saul to work with the new look Bananarama? Let's hear from Mike Stock on what Bananarama was like with Jackie in the mix. Here he is. Jackie never involved herself in the studio with the writing in the way that Siobhan did. I don't know why, and obviously we had nothing to do with why Siobhan left or they took on Jackie. So that, that was the, that's all internal to their world. I would have preferred, honestly, to have gone straight to a duo uh, as opposed to just bringing in a third member. But So in the end, when we sat down and wrote, I'd be sitting there with uh, Sarah and uh, Karen. Well, Mike Stock would get his way in a few years' time when the duo version of Bananarama would in fact come back to work with Saw or Swer. What are we calling Stock and Waterman? SW? SW. Anyway, we'll get to that. That's that's for future episodes. But it is worth noting one thing, Matt, isn't it? Yeah, that was the first and last time that Jackie ever got a writing credit on a Bananarama record. She didn't get anything on Pop Life. So yeah, interesting little moment, but it was only one moment. So we got another insight into the state of the new Bananarama lineup around this time as well, with the girls preparing to hit the road for the very first time after years and years of promising a tour. Jackie told Grode Farrelly on his rather wonderful podcast that things started to go awkward very quickly. Quote, I remember still being a big party girl, but having to go to a lot of dance rehearsals The first one I turned up to, I'd been tripping the night before and still was a little bit the next morning. And me and my friend turned up with Blade Runner Black Eyes and Tutus to the first rehearsal with Bruno Tonioli. And he was giggly about it, but the girls were not so giggly about it. So I think we did about half an hour and they sent me home. That was the start. They should have known then and just stopped it. And I've got to say, she was laughing when she said that last sentence, Gavin. (laughs) Yeah, well, speaking of tours, Love, Truth and Honesty was performed on Bananarama's reunion tour with Siobhan back in the mix. And I think that's a testament to the fact that this really is a fan favourite song, despite falling short of the top 20, something that all four singles from WOW had achieved. It really is up there with fans' favourite favourite Bananarama tracks, isn't it? Yeah, it should be noted, though, that that track did fall off the set list pretty quickly. It was only in the first few shows, and rumour has it was because Siobhan wasn't comfortable with it. But we, we don't know that for sure. But it is a great song, and that's, I'm sure, the reason why it was on the initial set list. Yeah, it definitely marked a little bit of a progression for Bananarama. I think it's easily the most sophisticated single Bananarama had done with Saw, unless you include the remix of Trick of the Night. But in terms of a Saw composition, it was definitely a move to something a little bit old, it wasn't a cheery pop song like I Want You Back or Love in the First Degree or a cheeky little tune like I Can't Help It. And the girls wore nice prom dresses in the video. It all seemed aimed at a slightly older audience. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, this was a bit of a departure from the non-stop upbeat joy of the WOW singles. Pete Waterman had conceived that project as a pop-tastic onslaught, but this track is kind of an unexpected return to the downbeat and solemn vibe that some of the tracks the band were doing just before they came over to the hit factory, albeit with a much jauntier production behind it. Karen told Record Mirror at the time, and I quote, The single's more bitter than it appears on the surface. It's not, hey, love, truth and honesty. It's what a fool was I to believe in love, truth and honesty. 
see. So it's surprisingly dark, isn't it, Gavin? But the production distracts you from that a bit. And that's a trick that Saul would pull out of the bag every now and then with, you know, the dark lyric and the jaunty backing track. Yeah, there's a real sadness to it. It's one of those tears on the dance floor thing. Although, as you say, you wouldn't know it from the video with Sarah pulling all those faces and mucking around true to form. So it is that, yeah, juxtaposition of quite a sad lyric with something a little bit fun and, and you know, that's Bananarama really, isn't it? Now, in terms of the extended mixes of this song, I actually think this is another one where I quite like the extended mix, even though that's not normally my thing. But I'm a big fan of the Hot Power mix, which incidentally comes in an edited form as well, which is great for me. It's a freestyle mix that was much more suited for the US market. Let's have a listen to that. Matt, what do you make of the hot power mix of Love, Truth and Honesty? Yeah, freestyle's definitely the word, isn't it? And the other thing that springs to mind is Pet Shop Boys domino dancing. Yeah, it's a shame it didn't push it higher up the US chart. But despite the lack of chart action for Love, Truth and Honesty, not only could the girls console themselves with great sales for Greatest Hits collection, but they entered the Guinness Book of Records, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. It was around this point that they got a big mention in the Guinness Book of Records as the all-girl group with the most UK chart entries. And that's a record that they still hold to this day. That got spun as being the UK's most successful ever girl group. The Spice Girls might dispute that now, though, don't you think, Gavin? Well, in terms of worldwide sales, yes, but they didn't actually have that many singles. But from a brand new song by Bananarama, we come now to another sore regular returning with new music. With the first single from her second album, Wicked, this is Sunita with I Don't Believe in Miracles. That was Sunita with I Don't Believe in Miracles, which was released on the same day as Love, Truth and Honesty and peaked just one place higher in the UK chart at number 22. And as I mentioned, this was the first single from a new album from Sunita. So like Bananarama, it was the first taste of what a new project from Sunita might be like. And also like Bananarama, it was a little bit of a change of direction. We'd become used to songs like Toy Boy, So Macho, GTO from Sunita, even Cross My Broken Heart was kind of cutesy even though it wasn't overtly gimmicky i don't believe in miracles was a very different song altogether wasn't it matt this is a song that seemed to take its cues from a very very old piece of music dating back many many decades before well pete waterman has made a number of how shall i say hotly disputed claims in the past about saw tracks being based on classical tunes but this sonita track is very reminiscent of part of the third movement of symphony number no. five by Finnish composer Jean Sibelius, which dates back to 1919. Let's have a listen to the section in question. (laughs) 
Right, so that's quite a well-known element. Apparently it came to Sibelius when he heard a flock of swans taking off from a lake one day. And Sunita isn't the only act who's come out with music that's widely perceived to have its roots in that moment of birdwatching. Very similar sequences have appeared in a string of other songs, most notably in a song called Since Yesterday by Strawberry Switchblade. Let's have a listen to that. There you go, since yesterday from back in 1984. What do you make of that, Gavin? Yeah, I wasn't aware of this before, but since you pointed it out, it's really quite clear that this little melodic moment features in both Since Yesterday and I Don't Believe in Miracles. And it's a really nice element to it. It definitely isn't the perky, poppy type of tune we'd come to expect from Sunita. It was very out of character for her, but I guess that was what was needed to prevent her becoming a caricature. And it's another kind of tears on a dance floor tune in terms of the lyrics. We just heard, you know, what a fool to believe in love, truth and honesty. Now it's I don't believe in miracles. So Sunita was definitely doing something different here, wasn't she? To me, this is a quantum leap from something like So Macho or Toy Boy, which are Sunita's defining hits. Saw were usually very careful to pace the development of their artists, but this is one instance where the leap in tone seems quite dramatic. I personally love this record. I think it's without doubt the best thing Sunita ever did. If I'm going to play one of her records on Spotify, this is going to be my choice nine times out of ten. But from the point of view of her core market at the time, it might have been a step too far. Her biggest hits until this point were a lot broader and strongly appealed to young kids and among her older listeners to lovers of high camp. This is a relatively sophisticated record, although it's still very pop. We'd see that evolutionary move rolled back a fair bit with subsequent Sunita releases and you have to assume that the chart performance of this single is the reason why. And the video as well was very different for Sunita. There she was performing on stage, holding a microphone with a band, those double drummers bashing away, confetti, wind machines going. It was kind Kind of rock star-ish in a way for a pop act, wasn't it? Yeah, the double drum is very Zig Zig Sputnik there. I like the video. It's obvious that they originally conceived it as being a, a bit more sort of complex than they ended up editing it because there's a sequence that's only used right in the very last seconds of the video where she's in the bikini wedding dress, but they just stuck with the stage performance, I think, because they just thought it worked so well and it does work well. It's a good little video. I, I think, you know, it's got a bit of money behind it. This is a long way from so much show, isn't it? Great video, great song. That Wedding dress bikini is really interesting. Obviously, that pops up on the single cover for this track. But yeah, it's kind of just shoved in there like an afterthought at the end of the video. I don't know, is that the climax of the video? She kind of meets her husband-to-be after her performance, comes off stage, whips on her wedding bikini and gets married. I don't, I don't know, it's a bit weird. Anyway, but what does Sunita think about I Don't Believe in Miracles? Well, let's find out. Here she is. You know, the funny thing is, is I was always amazed to find that it was a fan favorite because I wasn't a fan of the song simply because I thought it was so sad and so dreary and that the message was so negative. And also because I do believe in miracles. I'm really spiritual and, you know, I'm quite, you know, into crystals and all of that. So I was like, it's it's not something I would ever actually say. So I was really surprised that that song was, was a favorite. And I still don't quite understand why, but I've, I've reintroduced it into my set when I do PAs and stuff because I realize that people like it and I'm trying to, to grow to like it more myself. It's not that I disliked it. I just thought it wasn't 
a great message. Yeah, right. I think it's that whole tears on the dance floor thing, you know, Robin's dancing on my own, that kind of I'm sad, but... Yeah, yeah, but I just didn't think that I was that kind of, you know, I wanted to be more of a happy, a happy diva, happy disco diva than one, you know, ain't nothing going on but the rent divas. But yeah, I guess, you know, that's my contribution to the kind of heartbreak sessions. <laughs> yeah. So when you were presented with the song, were you in two minds about whether you even wanted to do it? Yeah, I actually said, no, I don't like this one. And they were like, what? You know, this is brilliant. And, you know, everybody, you know, Mike, Matt, and Pete, and I think, you know, Simon, Ian Burton, like everybody was saying, the song's a hit, the song's a hit. And I can remember just having a face like a screwed up toffee sort of thing. <laughs> Mm. And I was like, yes, but it's kind of miserable. And like, you know, my music's supposed to be happy and up. And they were like, yes, but this is kind of grown up, Sunita. And I was thinking, all right, okay. But I mean, I was half right because it, it didn't do as well as some of the others. But you did get to wear a wedding bikini. Yes, which I made myself. It was um, actually a bit of old lace that I found in Kensington Market. And um, whenever we used to have album or single cover shoots, they'd get a stylist in who'd bring in all these amazing designer clothes. And I'd come in, love everything on the rack and sort of buy it to wear for like dinners and private stuff, but always end up wearing something for the cover that was something I'd found somewhere and draped or wrapped around myself. And they'd kind of go, actually, yeah, I get it. And and, uh, yeah, but I wonder if I jinxed myself because... You know, my first, well, my only marriage ended in divorce. And of course, Simon, who I always thought I'd grow up to marry, I didn't marry. So do you see what I mean? Negative (laughs) connotations, negative programming, self-fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) So it's interesting that Sunita wasn't actually that in favour of this single, even though she appreciates it's a good song. She didn't really gel with the lyrics for kind of a different reason because she's an optimist and, you know, she does believe in miracles, as she said. But I think at the root of that is, yes, her realising that this was quite different and out of character for her. But the fans do love it and it has held up very well. I do prefer Toy Boy and GTO being the pop fan that I am. But I do love this. It's a really great track. And listening to it all these decades later, it still sounds really good and possibly hasn't dated in the way that Toy Boy and GTO have a little bit and, and so macho as well. Now, for whatever reason, and we are going to discuss the reasons, this was the last time Sunita worked with Saw as a trio, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. And there are different stories out there as to why Sunita stopped working directly with Saw after this single. In his book, The Hit Factory, Mike Stock wrote about creative differences driving the two parties apart. Quote, what Sunita really wanted to do was to sing soul. It has been said that Saw dropped Sunita in favour of Kylie Minogue. However, Sunita was never on the PWL label. She was always on Simon's Fanfare label. And by the time Kylie came along in 1988, we were all moving on. Sunita has made it clear she wanted to do different kinds of music. She had a good voice and she certainly could sing soul, but that wasn't what the public wanted at the time. Sunita wanted to reinvent herself, but reinvention rarely works, especially in the case of chart pop stars. For his part, Pete Waterman has spoken in the past about Simon Cowell refusing to wait for a time when Saw could become available to work with Sneeder again and deciding to go his own way with other producers. We have a likely idea of Simon Cowell's perspective from a book called Sweet Revenge, The Intimate Life of Simon Cowell by Tom Bauer. Now, it should be noted that this book is an unofficial biography, but Cowell famously sat for multiple interviews with the author in an effort to manage its contents. That 
Facebook claims that Waterman became disenchanted with the Sunita project while travelling on the Hitman Roadshow. Bauer writes that the cost was, and I quote, Waterman's refusal to assign another of his best singles to Sunita. It seems that the musical path that had been chosen for Sunita with her prior material might have also played a role in creating the impasse. Bauer quotes Carol as saying to Sunita, I feel physically sick when I hear Donna Summer because after Toy Boy I can't get those songs for you. Only Pete and no one else can give you that quality of material. Thoughts, Gavin? Yeah, it does seem to be quite a few reasons for why this working relationship fell apart after this single with everyone, I guess, putting their two cents worth in. And Sunita herself has some thoughts about the end of her working relationship with Stockhake and Waterman. Let's hear them now. Um, it was going really well, you know, and I sort of had actually a secret crush on Mike Stock, which I never talked about. I thought he was really cute and it was all, it was all really good. I was um, a bit upset with them because I'd really wanted Better the Devil You Know, which of course Kylie got. I remember actually having a stamp, stamping my foot tantrum about it as well. Like, you know, she gets all the best songs and I really want that song. And, you know, she got a song in French and I never got a song in French and, you know, just random random ranting about everything but I really 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 wanted that song so apart from sulking about that that everything was was really good so you didn't work with them again I mean you still did stuff with PWL but do you know why after I don't believe in miracles you didn't do any more saw tracks no I don't really know I think they I think we were growing in different directions I wanted to sort of do a bit more kind of grown-up stuff We'd had a conversation about how, you know, sexy Kylie was coming of age and so she was going to be going more sexy and they thought they'd move me to a different direction and that Kylie was going to be coming more into my lane. And I was finding stuff like that really unfair and sort of thinking, well, it's not fair, you know, because I kind of want to do what I want to do. But um, yeah, like you said, I still worked with um, I still worked with PWL. Sunita did record a couple of other tracks with Saw around this time, How Can This Be Real Love and Do You Want to Find Out, but those songs wouldn't see the light of day in the 80s and would eventually be included on greatest hits collections down the track. Let's take a listen. So it's unfortunate that this was the end of the road for Sunita and Stock Aitken and Waterman. They had made some great, great pop tracks together. I don't think either of those unreleased songs we just heard would have been big hits. It's great that they were eventually released and they do show that Saw were trying to make the more mature, even slightly soulful thing work for Sunita. But all it might have taken was one more song as good as I Don't Believe in Miracles in this new, more mature vein for the public to move with her. Perhaps Sunita was right to demand her own better the devil you know. What did in fact happen was that she went back to the cheery, bright, poppy stuff with a string of cover versions starting with her next single right back where we started from.
Right back where we started from, kept Sunita in the PWL stable being produced by Pete Hammond. Here's what he recalls about working on that track. So I didn't want to work. They said, Mike, Mike said she's too cabaret. And so it was Simon Cowell and, and Tilly Rutherford that got me to do a track with Sunita. And they chose right back where we started from, which was written by Pierre Tubbs, who I'd met years and years ago when I was a teenager. Um, he tried to get my, my wife and the other girl singer from our band to record in his studio. And he wanted to nick my wife and my, my mate's wife and, and promote them as a girl, two girls. You know, Anyway, it never worked out. But that was Pierre Tubbs. But he wrote this song. All the while I was doing it, Pete Waterman kept saying, you got it all wrong, you got it all wrong. And he never came in on the sessions, but he said, the bass is all wrong, the bass is all wrong. I said, no, it's not, it's great. And eventually they had egg on their face because it was uh, the biggest hit that she'd had from our stable, made number four, whereas the previous attempts had done as, as well. I don't think they were really, their heart was really into it with her, you know. Having produced her as opposed to mixing, because you'd mixed her earlier stuff, having her in the studio, how did you find her? She was very sweet, actually. She wasn't difficult to work with, but she hasn't got all the, we call it vocal decorations, where they go, and all bits on the ends and the start. She just sings it straight and a bit, um, which is why right back where we started from kind of works, because it's it's very staccato kind of um, lyric and delivery. So it kind of worked for her. With such huge success for one remake, top five in the UK, top 10 in Australia, more followed, including Love on a Mountaintop, produced by Harding and Kerno, and Hitch and a Ride, produced by London Boys producer Ralph René Moe. Let's have a listen to them. Matt, what did you make of Sunita's shift back to such cheery pop after I Don't Believe in Miracles? Well, I think it was right on the money to begin with. Right back where we started from was very on the money as a song choice with good production. It was a great start to Sunita's post-saw career. It got to number four in the UK and it was her long-awaited big chart breakthrough here in Australia, reaching seven on the charts. And that's far better than any of her saw singles did here. None of those broke into the local top 40. I think she was let down later on with some of the song choices they weren't up to the standard of the first one but I think she showed what she could do with right back where we started from yeah for me it was a case of too many covers I agree right back where we started from was excellent you know Pete Hammond did a really good job on that Sunita did a really good job on that the video is fun I mean it's a cheap fake beach scene but she looks like she's having a great time in the video. It was really a good clip for that track. But after that, I mean, Love on a Mountaintop and Hitching a Ride, I just found them a little bit, not tacky, because she did a good version. I just don't like the songs. I, I just find the songs a bit tacky, not so much Sunita's performance on them. Let's hear from Sunita about all those cover versions. I loved doing right back where we started from. To be honest, I didn't want to just be doing covers because I thought doing original material would be best. And I'd started writing, you know, and I'd written things like body shopping and, and things like that. And I would have I would have liked to have those songs released, but collectively with the record company, these were the tracks that they wanted to 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 release as singles. And I 
you know, in hindsight, they were right. You know, right back we started from did really, really well. And, you know, I love performing the songs, hitching a ride and all of that. But I would have liked to have seen Body Shopping and some of the others. Now, the thing to note about Love on a Mountaintop and Hitching a Ride was that they were successful in the UK. She was still having hits with them. What didn't work so well around this time was when Sunita slowed the tempo down and perhaps went into that soul vein that you were talking about when you were quoting Mike Stock. Let's listen to a couple of her other singles from 89 and 90. So that was Lay Me Down Easy, another of the singles from Wicked, and Love and Affection, a cover of the Joan Armour Trading track, which was her last single for Fanfare. Matt, what did you think of Sunita's down-tempo tunes? Well, I think it's another situation like the Bananarama curse. Sunita's market wanted fun and upbeat material, just like Bananarama's fan base did. And it probably didn't matter how good the slower material was. Her public wasn't looking for that kind of vibe from Sunita, and they just weren't going to buy it. Yeah. Yeah, I did like Lay Me Down Easy. I thought it was a really good track. It tanked, absolutely tanked in the UK, unfortunately. And I think Love and Affection was kind of lost in the mix when Fanfare kind of disintegrated. Sunita moved on to Arista and she did more covers. Shame, shame, shame. She did the Supreme EP. She did Aquarius. It kind of felt like she'd painted herself into a corner a little bit or her record companies had painted her into a corner where all she was putting out was these cover versions. You know, some of them did okay shame 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 did okay but i don't know i i think the fact that i don't believe in miracles didn't make the top 20 she was stuck after that yeah look i think it probably put the the fear of god into simon cowell and he was just determined that every song had to be a proven hit and that's why he was all covers 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 and that's the reputation that simon developed you know at pwl he was mr covers and that's how they saw him and for good reason now speaking of covers sunita had one more experience working not with saw but with stock and aitken not that anyone knew at the time let's hear from sunita about her last collaboration with sa i guess we're calling them sa stock and aitken anyway here she is. Then I did go on to work with Mike Stock one more time when we did um, a spoof for the Cook Report and we did You Can Do Magic with Debbie Curry, Edwina Curry's daughter. Yes, yes, that's right. And you provided the vocal and she kind of fronted it. It was, it was about um, to, to prove that the charts were rigged, right? Yeah, but the sad thing about it is I hadn't known. I wasn't actually in on it. So I recorded the song and I was really excited about it and thought it sounded like a hit. And, you know, it'd been a while since we worked together. So like a bit of a reunion track. And then I saw the posters all over town and thinking, gosh, they're really promoting it well and going all out for it. And all I could see was the title of it. And the whole thing was supposed to be you didn't know who the artist was. And then it was revealed that it was Debbie Curry. And I was thinking, that's really weird because it's not Debbie Curry, it's me. And I can remember frantically trying to contact Mike Sock and saying, you know, I think this girl Debbie Curry's done a, a, a version of the same song. You know, it, it's a nightmare. So is it her, her version or my version that's plastered all over the place? 
And then, of course, the Cook report came out and I was pretty devastated. And I thought Mike had sort of played a horrible trick on me, but but we, 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 we made it up. Okay, let's hear that track, You Can Do Magic, which Sunita provided the vocals for. So, Matt, I guess it's a shame that Sunita's journey with Stock and Aiken ended with her essentially being a session singer. Well, yeah, it was a shame. But, you know, Sunita still has a high profile to this day. She's very much associated with the 80s and the, the glory years of PWL. She had a really good run. But, you know, by any any standard of any pop career, she had, a, she had a, a good solid book of hits there, didn't she? So she did well. Oh, definitely did well. I just would love to have seen what might have happened had she been able to do more original stuff and more stuff which was clearly in keeping with what she wanted to do you know she mentioned body shopping as one of the tracks that she would have loved to have seen released that would have been a great track to release it was kind of in her wheelhouse but it was an original track but I guess we'll never know. But what we do know is, as you said, Sunita is still very much in the public eye and she just released a new single recently. Let's have a quick listen to Do It To Me Baby. Okay, from one mononymed singer starting with S, we come to another. No, not Sonia. We don't reach her until 1989. Matt, all of me wants to know who it could be. Yes, get that white bikini out. It's time for Sabrina. The Italian TV celebrity turned pop sensation was everywhere in 1988 with her surprise breakthrough hit, Boys, Summertime Love. That track was massive all over Europe and did what not many Italian records had done before by breaking out big time in English-speaking countries like the UK and here in Australia. When the time came to return to the studio after that first burst of success, who else do you go to to keep the good times rolling but the world's biggest pop producers, Stock, Aitken and Waterman? The resulting track was All of Me, subtitled Boy Oh Boy in Some Territories, which charted in the UK in October of 88. Let's have a listen. That was All of Me by Sabrina, which reached number 25 in the UK, two in Finland, nine in Denmark, 15 in France, 12 in Italy and Switzerland, and 16 in Germany. So who was Sabrina? She'd risen to a degree of prominence in Italy in the mid-80s after winning a high-profile beauty pageant. Then she scored a role on an Italian Saturday night variety show called Premiatissima. By 86, she'd been scouted by powerful Italian TV and recording industry figure Claudio Cicchetto, who was also responsible for some other international cross crossover acts like Taffy and Sandy Martin. At 17, Sabrina went into the studio and recorded her first hit, Sexy Girl, which went top 20 in Italy, and not long after that was her international breakthrough with Boys, which topped charts all around the world. Let's have a listen to those two big hits now.
Now, as well as being a great Europop song, Boys also had something else working in its favour, a video that a lot of straight men who ran music TV could not get enough of. I couldn't believe it when I first saw Boys played late at night here on MTV Australia. Now, for some context, that was an outlet whose usual fare at the time was things like Michael Jackson and White Snake. And then on comes this Europop track, and that's a genre that MTV Australia would not usually touch with a barge pole. When Sabrina's bikini started falling off, exposing her nipples, I understood suddenly why they had an interest. Do you remember that, Gavin? Yeah, I do. I remember MTV Australia used to play all those topless videos. There was an R-rated version of Poison by Alice Cooper, and that got flogged because it had bare breasts in it. Yeah, any video that had a little bit of raunch in it would get played to death on MTV Australia. But what an attention-grabbing single boy's summertime love was. Well, obviously the thing that grabbed all the attention was that video. And without that swimming pool clip, I doubt it would have been anywhere near as big. But I have a confession to make. Like so many other teenagers in Australia, I did pause and slow-mo those crucial nip-slip scenes. Oh my god, Gavin. Even though in 1988 I was starting to work out what type of pop star I actually fancied, I did take a close look at just how badly that white bikini did contain all of Sabrina. <laughs> this is making me really uncomfortable, Gavin. Well, Sabrina <laughs> herself says what happened in the video wasn't planned, and she wasn't too thrilled when she saw the finished result. She told journalist Frank Arena in his book Europe's Stars of 80s Dance Pop, and I quote, Really what happened in that video was an accident. Truly. And that video was created for a television show called Festival Bar. It wasn't filmed like a real video for a song. It was meant to be a short film segment that they played while announcing who was going to be performing on the TV show. I think we filmed those shots in 10 minutes. 10 minutes. But the host of that show was Claudio Cicchetto, and realising that the video was powerful, he thought it would be great to release it as an official song video without censoring those scenes. I saw the clip and saw myself tugging at my bikini top and I was like, oh shit, they didn't tell me that that was going to be in it. I was so fucking angry. I called Claudio and said, I don't want to know you anymore, you crazy man. What have you done to me? He told me I would sell millions of records because of it. It turns out he was right. At the time, I assumed it was oh so deliberate. Like, even in the naivety of my youth, I thought, she knows what she's doing. She knows exactly what she's doing. But it's interesting to hear that backstory behind the video. And that doesn't sit too well with me. It feels a little bit like she was being taken advantage of. Yeah, it is a bit creepy. Well, Sabrina enjoyed a run of European hits with Chiquetto, but he ultimately walked away from their working relationship. She claimed he preferred working with male artists. So new producers were sought out, and top-tier names like Saw and Giorgio Moroda were more than happy to oblige. And it made sense for Saw to work with Sabrina. There was already a link with PWL because Pete Hammond had remixed Boy's Summertime Love for its second UK release. His remix appeared on the 12-inch single. Boys had stalled at number 60 in February 1988 in the UK. On its re-release in June, it went to number three. I'm not saying it's because of Pete Hammond's remix, but that PWL connection can't have hurt. Sabrina spoke highly of working with Saw. She noted in particular how professional they were and how fast. Apparently, it wasn't her prior experience that you could just be in and out of a studio very quickly with a hit under your belt. She told Number One magazine, and I quote, It was fun working with them. They don't waste time. They like to get the job done with. Of course, I had heard of them before and I liked a lot of the records they did. Am I aware that a lot of people say they are ruining pop music? Yes, I have heard a lot of people say they don't like them, but I think these people are jealous. Anyone who 
is successful makes people jealous. And I think a lot of people would like to be in the place of Stock Aitken and Waterman. No? Yes, it does feel like Sabrina is another of those singers who darted in and out of PWL, was probably there for a couple of hours, and that's it, tops. So I don't imagine that Saw have, you know, particularly vivid memories of working with her. That wouldn't be true for the videos, though, because this was released on PWL in the UK. So I'm assuming PWL had some involvement in the UK clip because that looks very much like a PWL video. It's kind of got, you know, the singer up the front with a couple of dancers behind her, very much of that kind of Rick Astley style video, like Together Forever, that kind of thing. And, you know, there's not a swimsuit in sight. In the British video, she's got some, yeah, there's some busty dresses, but she looks like a pop star. She's got her hair done nicely. She's got great makeup and jewellery and that kind of thing. It is a very stylized video compared to the European video, <laughs> which uh, it's, you know, Sabrina cavorting around with a variety of musical equipment and soft toys on the beach. And there's some bizarre scenes where she's playing with the rips in the jeans of a guy in her band. It's, it just feels thrown together. If Boys wasn't a deliberate video, this doesn't seem like a deliberate video. So the UK clip is much better, in my opinion. What do you think about the two videos, Matt? Yeah, the Italian video looks very much like something from one of those Italian magazine shows. She's on this very sort of cold and wet and wintry looking Italian beach trying to look like she's having a great time, but I think she looks really cold actually. Mm. Of course she's in her white swimwear and then there's those laughable sequences with her, you know, attempting to play various musical instruments. There is some crossover with that in the UK yes. version of All of Me where she is playing a guitar as well. But like you say, the UK clip is great. It's got that sort of innocence and joy about it, whereas the Italian one is, how shall I say, a little bit more over sexual. Oh, it sure is. Now, as a song, I think All of Me suited Sabrina perfectly. I don't think it's one of Saw's best singles, but it's a good pop song. I mean, clearly modelled on boys. You go from boys, 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 to boy, oh boy. The similarities are there, but the production is heavier compared to the other two tracks that we've talked about this episode. There's a real throbbing, thudding base to all of me that really suited Sabrina. It's a lot more European than Love, Truth and Honesty or I Don't Believe in Miracles. It definitely suited her and is in line with the other tracks that she did. And I guess another example of Saw tailoring their songwriting to the artist in question. I think they did a good job. It's not my favourite Sabrina single, but I think it's a good track. Yeah, I think this is a really studied follow-up to boys. They both somehow managed to evoke bouncing breasts with the way they sound, <laughs> with that beat and the buoyant synths. It's kind of a Sabrina audio fingerprint. It's like Saw dissected boys and put it back together a bit differently. To be honest, I actually like All of Me a bit more than boys as a song. It's so much fun and it always, always makes me smile. It always cheers me up. But boys being such a huge hit is always going to overshadow this song. All of Me sold really well all over Europe. But in the UK and Australia, the Sabrina wave had ebbed. This song didn't really have the sensation of the raunchy video behind it to push it. It was released on PWL Records in the UK, so you know they tried to tailor it for the UK market, but it just didn't fly. I'm still always going to love it. I think it's a lovely, buoyant, summery, innocent, fun pop song. Now in the bonus material, we'll be talking about some of Sabrina's non-Saw releases. Obviously, she went on to have many, many more singles. A couple of them had PWL mixes. 
and her music career has continued pretty much until today. I mean, she doesn't do that much music, it seems. Every time I look on Instagram, she's on a beach somewhere posing in a swimsuit. You know, some things never change. But she has kept her hand in with music over the years, kind of like Samantha Fox, who in fact she has duetted with. It's not something she does all the time, but she hasn't left the music industry completely. Yeah, it's great to see Sabrina still out there. She's got a very active Instagram feed for those who haven't seen it. I read a great feature on her in an Italian newspaper the other day with her husband. She's happily married. She's got a teenage son. She's obviously enjoying life and she's not really aged a day. She looks fantastic. So well done, Sabrina. Yes, Sabrina and her one million Instagram followers. Now, what's interesting about the three singles we've talked about this episode and in fact, Turn It Into Love from the last episode as well is that it was four sore singles in a row that peaked in the 20s. It was 21, 22, 23, and 25, which was a bit of a come down from the types of chart positions Saw had become used to in 1988. Well, that is going to be restored. We've got a really solid lineup of pop gems next episode, two of which put Saw back in the top 10. And instead of a bit of Italian, we're going to have a bit of French. We, 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 French via Melbourne, perhaps Gavin. <laughs> so I think, you know, that's a real favourite. Um, I think you probably all know what we're talking about. So we look forward to seeing you then. If you'd like to get in contact with us, we can be reached on social media at ChartbeatsAU on Twitter and Instagram or by searching for Chartbeats on Facebook. And if you'd like to reach me directly, I can be found on Twitter at Mr. Matt Denby. And just finally, I'd like to offer a special thank you to Champion Fan 2010 in the UK, Simon in Sweden and DD Fan in the US for your wonderful, kind reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for those words, Gavin and I really appreciate it. And as I said, in the bonus material for this episode, we're going to be talking more about Sabrina. I got something to say about <laughs> Sabrina, so tune in for that. You can find the bonus material at chartbeats.com.au slash saw, where you can subscribe to listen to the bonus material. That's it for now. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.